Hey guys, welcome back. We're now in session five, and after you listen to this podcast, you're only going to have one more session left, so I'm so glad that you've stuck it out with us this far. Um, I want to just start by saying that, yes, I am sick. I know my voice sounds awful. I'm super scratchy, and I know that this whole session I'm going to be coughing and sniffling, and there's just nothing I can do about that, so I'm really, really sorry. I was thinking, should I edit all the coughing and sniffling out, but there's just no way. Nobody has time for that, so if I can push through teaching this way, then I think you can push through listening, and we're going to be fine. So just wanted to get that out there. Sorry for my voice. Um, Today we're going to be talking through chapter four in the book of James, and I hope that we're starting to really see, and we're going to see even more today, how there's so much more cohesion to the book of James as a whole than we might have realized when we first started. I know we've talked about individual thought processes, but as we kind of start getting near the end of the book, I hope we're going to start to see the whole book has so much more cohesion than we might have realized. We've seen how in the beginning James laid out those two paths to suffering, um, how they can lead us either towards perseverance and steadfastness, or they can lead us to temptation and death. This is the framework that James laid out for us um, before spending the rest of the book addressing specific ways that his original audience was finding themselves on the second path. Now jumping into chapter 4, it's important to note that there's a few different opinions that scholars have about whether James is starting a new thought process here in chapter 4, or if this is a continuation of the train of thought in chapter 3. And really, that could honestly be said about the entire book of James. There's so many people who disagree on which thoughts are grouped together, which train of thoughts go together, what's broken up. Um, And so you could read five different commentators and have five different outlines of how they think that the book is divided up. Um, I was an English major, I'm a kind of an English nerd, so I tend to follow the grammar clues. So we're going to get a little bit nerdy for a few minutes, and we're going to see how the grammar indicates what thoughts might be grouped together, because I really feel like verses 1 through 3 is still part of the whole last chapter. It's still the same thought process. Um, <clears throat> so why is that? Why do I think that? Well, you might have noticed throughout the book that James often addresses his readers. Like he kind of stops what he's saying and addresses them. He says things like, my brothers or my beloved brothers. He just kind of throws that out there a lot of times in the, and as he's going. Now he seems to do this for two different reasons. He does it first when he's introducing a new train of thought, or second, if he's in the middle of a thought process and he's wanting to emphasize something that he's saying. So it's not always a new train of thought, but typically when there is a new train of thought, it's marked by him addressing them in some way by saying, my brothers or my beloved brothers. Now the fact that he does do this so often when he's introducing a new thought, a lot of scholars have used that to help outline which verses go together and which ones don't. So for example, in chapter 1, he starts verse 2 with, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And that's kind of the start of his introduction section. And then in 119, we see that he's shifting into a new thought process into this first rebuke because he says, know this, my beloved brothers. And then in chapter 2, he starts a new thought process again when he says, my brothers show no partiality, and so on and so forth. Well, what do you notice about the beginning of chapter 4? Do we see in my brothers or my beloved brothers? No, we don't see an address to the people. We don't see my brothers or any similar address to the audience, which tends to be typical of James when he starts a new thought. The last time that he said my brothers was at the beginning of chapter 3, when James introduced this long section in chapter 3 about selfish ambition. Because then, then when he, that's when he said, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. And so a lot of people think that that's indicating that new thought process. Well, we haven't had another my brothers. And that's one of the clues that maybe this is still the same train, the same train of thought. We also saw last week in chapter 3 that we did feel like, even though it seems like a lot of disconnected thoughts at first, not in like multiple topics, that it really was one train of thought when you really analyze it. 
Okay, what's one more clue? Well, in chapter 3, the end of chapter 3, James asked a question in verse 13. He said, who is wise and understanding among you? And now in chapter 4, verse 1 starts with another question that kind of seems to parallel it. He says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? So it's like in this whole thought process, he stops and says, who's wise and understanding among you back in chapter three? And now he's saying, what causes quarrels and fights among you? There are these parallel questions. It looks like these two parallel questions that belong in the same thought process. So the overall, the entire thought process starting in the beginning of chapter three would look like this. In chapter three, James rebukes them for seeking teaching rules out of selfish ambition. He shows them the power of words and how destructive that they can be, especially when they're misused by teachers for their own reasons. And then he asks two questions that are meant to drive home his point. He asks, who is wise and understanding among you, which we talked about last week because they wanted to appear wise when they were teaching these, seeking these roles. And then he asks, what causes quarrels and fights among you? That's how chapter four starts and where we find ourselves today. So it's likely that these first few verses, verses one through three, are still part of that longer train of thought that we read last week in chapter three. Now you might be thinking, does that really matter? Can't we just read these verses? Does it really matter what thought process that they're a part of? Well, hopefully at this point in the study, you've started to see that the context really does matter and it often changes the way that we read the text. So let's read these three verses and start diving in. So we're gonna start just by reading chapter four, verses one through three. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. <clears throat> now for those of you who are maybe a resist this idea of figuring out if this is a new thought process or part of the previous thought, maybe if you're thinking that really it doesn't matter, it doesn't make a difference, let's ask the question. What do these verses mean if they're a new thought and they stand alone, if it's just three, three verses? Well, I know for me, if I'm gonna just single out these three verses, and read them, I would probably kind of form this mental picture in my mind and it would be kind of extreme. I'm gonna picture, be picturing people who are fighting with each other, who are killing each other, who are ruled by their passions, whatever that means. This picture that I'm forming in my head from reading this might make me think, well, that's not really me. I'm not in huge fights with anybody. I'm not murdering people, I'm good. This seems a little extreme for me to relate to. Let's see what happens though when we look at it in this larger context and look at it grouped with the previous chapter. Remember, James is writing to Jewish Christians who are scattered from their homeland and are facing persecution and various trials. He tells them to let their trials develop perseverance and spiritual wholeness, and he warns them of temptations that come from trials. Now he's just addressed that one of the temptations their trials has brought about has been to pursue teaching roles in the church out of selfish ambition. They were trying to get honor and esteem however they could, honor and esteem however they could. James explained to them at the end of chapter 3 the difference between true godly wisdom and the empty false wisdom of the world that they were demonstrating with their selfish ambition. Now James is showing them that their quarrels and fighting amongst themselves is also a result of their dissatisfaction with the position that they are in. We've talked a lot about identifying the sin beneath the sin, and that's exactly what James does here. Their outward sin was quarrels and fights. James tells them that the sin beneath that is that their passions are at war within them. They're wanting what they can't have, and it's causing them to turn on each other. They're wanting to be seen as better of each other, of higher of authority than each other, uh, more honored and esteemed than each other. The text even says that it's causing them to murder. 
Now, scholars can't agree on if they were actually murdering each other or if this is meant to be more metaphorical because really this was a period in time when it's not completely um, out of the question to think that they would be murdering each other just with what was going on in the culture around them. Um, but a lot of people think that that probably wasn't actually happening in the church at this point, but this is more metaphorical or saying that this is um, where that, that will lead you eventually. But either way, whether they were murdering each other or not, the heart of the problem remains the same. They really wanted what they just couldn't have. <clears throat> now we're talking about something that I can really relate to. This gets at my heart so much more than that extreme picture I formed when I was reading the passage alone. They're obsessed with getting what they want, but they can't or don't have. Now, you could stop there and say that they should just be content. Why can't they just be content with what they have and the position that they're in? But James goes further than this. He doesn't tell them to be content where they are. He tells them that the reason that they are frustrated is that they are desiring the wrong things. They pray and they appear to seek God, and they seek some form of wisdom and seek spiritual roles of influence, but they're doing it all in order to pursue their own pleasures and desires. They're doing it for the material and worldly gain that they can get out of it. They're not doing it to advance God's kingdom or to be more conformed into the image of Christ. The answer isn't to bury your passions and desires and to be content with what you have. The answer is to change the object of your passions and desires. We need to replace our selfish ambition and desires for riches of the world with a desire for God and for His kingdom. Only then can we pray and ask boldly, knowing that we're asking rightly, not wrongly, as James points out. There's no need to hold back your desire when you're desiring the right thing. And desiring God and his kingdom are, is never going to lead us into sin, like James's original audience found themselves in, and like we often find ourselves in as well. If you're wondering if you're desiring the right things for the right reasons, asking if your desires have led you to sin might give you a good clue about that. Now as we move on to the text, we're going to move into sort of the heart of the whole letter next. Um, James has been priming his readers this whole time to see these two paths. He's been showing them so many ways that they've been walking the path of the world, riddled up with temptation and with sin, but they've been masking it. They've been fooling themselves into believing they were on the better path, the one that leads to spiritual wholeness. James has ripped off the mask of their so-called righteous actions, exposing them for what they truly were. They appear to want to teach in the church, but James shows that they really just wanted personal gain. They appear to want wisdom, but James shows that they only wanted to appear wise for their own selfish ambition. They appear to be coming to the Lord in prayer, but James shows that they just prayed for things that benefited themselves or that fed their passions and indulgent pleasures. Isn't it typical of human nature to take religion and to twist it around and to disguise it into something that we use to make much of ourselves or to help us gain the things of the world that our hearts seek after? James has spent the letter exposing them, and now he's about to make sure that they really see the gravity of what they're doing. So let's read chapter or verses 4 through 12 together, and then we'll kind of dive in a little bit to that section. So James chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will free from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. 
Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now remember how we talked about how new sections are often marked by James addressing the audience in some way. Typically, he says, my brothers, when he's starting a new thought, or something along those lines. Here, though, rather than calling his audience brothers, he addresses them as you adulterous people. That's a pretty drastic change from calling them brothers. Commentator Douglas Moo says that this address marks the beginning of the most strongly worded calls to repent that we find anywhere in the New Testament. So guys, if there's one part of this book that we need to understand, it's this one. James is passionately calling his audience to turn away from seeking the things of the world and to seek after God instead, the only one who can truly satisfy the desires of their hearts. According to Douglas Moo, James gathers up all the specific issues that he deals with in his letter into one all-embracing demand. And here, if anywhere, we find the heart of James's letter. Now, if this is the heart of James's letter, let's be sure we really understand what James is saying here and how everything he addressed in the letter up until now leads up to this point. First of all, why does James call them an adulterous people? Well, in doing this, he brings to mind the image of a marriage relationship. In a lot of the Old Testament, the prophets compare the relationship between God and his people to a marriage relationship. God is portrayed as the husband and Israel is portrayed as the wife. And we know in marriage it is expected that we will be faithful to our spouse. And we should not look outside of that marriage relationship for the things that should only be present within it. To look to another outside of marriage drastically harms, if not destroys, the marriage. You simply can't have a healthy, thriving marriage while at the same time having affairs with other people. To commit adultery is the opposite of loving your spouse. In the same way, James says, you can't have a healthy, thriving relationship with God while at the same time looking to the world to meet your innermost desires. To look to the world for satisfaction is the opposite of loving God. James even says it makes you an enemy of God. James has looked at the state of the Christians who had been scattered, and when we read his letter, it looks like he saw a people who claimed faith in God, but as that faith had been tested by their suffering, their true loves were revealed. In chapter 1, we see people who speak out of rash anger and are more concerned with improving their own situation than helping others. In chapter 2, they manipulate and use people who can help them climb out of their poverty while ignoring those who can't. They speak words of faith, but their actions just don't match. In chapter 3, they're seeking positions of influence within the church for the honor and esteem it would give them, but the wisdom they claim is only worldly wisdom that's self-serving and seeking after selfish ambition has caused fights and quarrels. People might even be killing each other. They're likely doing all of these things as a reaction to their suffering. They're looking for deliverance from what they're going through everywhere except for from God. And James calls them adulterers. Because if it was truly God who their hearts longed for above all else, their suffering and their trials would cause them to turn to him and to lean into him all the more. That's not the picture we've seen though, is it? We have seen a people grasping for the things that the world, not God, but the world promises will satisfy all of their needs. I'm going to quote Douglas Moo one more time. I know I've done it a lot this time, but he said some really, really good stuff here. And his words are so much better than I can say. He says, we have no evidence that James's readers were overtly disclaiming God and consciously deciding to follow the world instead. 
but their tendency to imitate the world by discriminating against people, by speaking negatively of others, by exhibiting bitter envy and selfish ambition, and by pursuing their own destructive pleasures amount to digest that. When believers behave in a worldly manner, they demonstrate that at that point, their allegiance is to the world rather than to God. Now, it's easy to look at the original readers with judgment, but if we're honest, how different are we really? We don't overtly disclaim God. We don't overtly make these conscious decisions to follow the world, but we do exactly what James's original readers do. We like to seek God when it benefits us, but we like to seek the things that the world offers us at the same time. We unconsciously blend pursuit of God with pursuit of the world. We can be incredibly double-minded, as James would say, but not even be aware of it. So James wants to be clear in verse 4 that to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. You can't pursue both things at the same time. It just doesn't work. To have a heart that's set on the empty promises of the world is essentially saying that we don't believe that God can come through on his promises to fulfill the innermost longings of our hearts. Then we come to verse 5. And this is sort of a confusing verse um, because, first of all, James says that he's quoting scripture here in verse 5. But what he says is not actually a quote found anywhere in the Old Testament. So people kind of disagree. Some scholars think that he's probably quoting some kind of lost apocryphal text, like a, a book that's not actually in the Bible, but that was prominent at the time. Um, but other people feel that he's probably not quoting an actual text word for word, but he's just kind of referencing the jealousy of God that is spoken of several places in Scripture. Um, so it's not really, we don't really know exactly um, which of those two is, is it, but that's kind of where scholars land. Um, the other difficult thing about this verse is that there's several different ways that it can be interpreted. And because of the different translations that we have, um, different translations that kind of approach the original Greek differently. So for example, the New Revised Standard Version says, God's your, God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. And that seems to kind of refer, refer to God's jealousy for his people. On the other hand, the NIV version says, the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely. And that could actually refer to human tendency to be jealous of what other people have. Now, either one of these interpretations still fits well with the marriage metaphor, though. So um, whichever one is right, they both kind of are helpful and make sense. Because God is jealous for his people the same way a husband is jealous for a wife who looks outside of her marriage for satisfaction. And at the same time, our tendency to be jealous of others constantly leads us to seek whatever they have and pulls us away from God that we're supposed to be faithful to in our hearts. Um, so either translation um, is, is a good one. And then we move on um, to see that James tells us to humble ourselves, and he gives us a picture of what that looks like. So verses 6 through 10, they sort of act like bookends. It kind of starts with God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, and then it ends with humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And then the verses in between these two bookends kind of give us a picture of what it looks like to humble ourselves. It says that we're supposed to resist the devil and submit to and draw near to God. In short, we're to repent. James has spent his letter pointing out specific sins, and then he shows that these sins are a symptom of something deeper, and that they are serious, and now he calls his readers to repentance. Even the wording of this whole section, verses 6 through 10 here, it's very similar to other sections of scripture and other places that they found in other books outside of scripture. So it's been thought by some scholars that this particular grouping of words and phrases found in 6 through 10 was kind of common wording of the time of just a general Christian call to repentance. And if that's true, then his readers would have heard this section and immediately recognized he's telling them to repent, not just to repent of specific 
specific sins that he's calling them out on, but to repent of the deeper issue of loving and seeking the world more than seeking God. I mean, look at the wording here. He tells his readers to cleanse their hands and purify their hearts. In other words, he wants them to repent not only of their outward actions, the hands, but also of their internal heart heart idolatry that leads to those actions, the purify the heart part. When we learn to identify and repent of our sins beneath our sins, like we've talked about so much in the study, then we will start the work of leaving behind our double-mindedness, as James would say. Then um, after that, he kind of tells them, he says, Be wretched and mourn and weep, and let your laughter return to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, James isn't saying here that to be holy, you have to be miserable. Um, it's not like something saying that you should never be joyful. But again, he's using language that in other areas of scripture either refer to God's judgment or calls people to repentance. So everything about verses 6 through 10 screams out, repent of everything I just pointed out and of everything I'm about to point out. Repent and turn back to God. That's essentially what James is saying in this section. Man. It's hard to follow that section. It feels like a pretty good place to drop the mic, but James has more to address, so he keeps going. So let's move on. What do we see in verse 11? He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Now remember what we talked about. He often addresses them, calling them brothers like this, whenever he's switching to a new thought process. Now that doesn't always mean he's switching to a new thought process, but often it does. Um, Now in that huge call to repentance that we just read that was in the center, the heart of the letter, he called them an adulterous people. But now we can see that he's shifting out of that. He's back to calling them brothers now, and he's returning to touching on specific sins that they were committing. Right away, he brings up not speaking evil about one another and not judging each other, both things that he's already mentioned in the letter. But for some reason, he specifically felt the need to repeat them again after that huge call to repentance. It makes me kind of wonder if he's hoping that they're going to see their sin more clearly now after that call to repentance. And he wants to just be sure to really drive home the need to repent of the disunity and the slander and the lack of love for one another. That seems to kind of be rampant. And then we move on and we kind of get to verse 13 and we get to a new train of thought. So let's read the end of the chapter together, starting in verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. In these verses, James is addressing certain people who had been making plans with no consideration for what God's plan for them would be. He seems to be speaking kind of to those Christians here who weren't necessarily struggling with the poverty that most of his readers were. It seems like most uh, scholars kind of say he might be addressing more of the merchant class of Christians here who were settling in cities throughout the Mediterranean just to seek financial gain. This was kind of a period of growing commercial activity. And yeah, there were a lot of Christians who were struggling and in poverty because of being dispersed. There were also some who were making a profit who were more in the merchant class. Now we need to be careful when we read this passage not to misunderstand what James is saying. The problem was not that they made plans. It wasn't even that they wanted to make a profit. The problem was their underlying attitude. They saw their futures as their own to control, and they arrogantly assumed that they would be successful in their own strength. There was no humility and no acknowledgement of the Lord's role in making their future plans. 
rather than seeking God and asking direction for the future and thanking him for any successes that they had. Instead, they boasted in their own ability to make things happen in their lives. They're essentially demonstrating a lack of submitting to God's lordship over their lives. They didn't see their lives as belonging to God. They saw their lives as belonging to themselves. In response to this behavior, James tells them that they should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Notice again, it's not the planning or even the desire to make a profit that James corrects here. He doesn't correct them and says, hey, don't plan for the future. He doesn't correct them and say, hey, you shouldn't want to make money. What he corrects them for is that they did not acknowledge the Lord and his guidance and what his will would be. What he corrects them for has to do with their heart. He's addressing their hard attitude of not seeking the Lord's direction and not giving the Lord any credit for success. He gives them these words to say. He says, you should say this. But does that mean that as long as they add the words, if the Lord wills, to whatever they're planning, that they're good to go? Of course not. Saying a few words doesn't necessarily mean that we <clears throat> truly believe that our lives are in the hand of God. It's not important that they say the words out loud, out loud every time they make plans. What's important is that their hearts truly reflect the belief that God is God and it is he who directs our paths and it's he who determines what the future holds. A person can speak of their plans for the future without saying the words out loud, if the Lord wills, but their heart could still be in the right place. They could completely be coming to it with that attitude. But another person might tack on these words, these empty words, and just say their own plans and then say, God willing, but they might not necessarily have the heart beliefs that back up what they just said. Um, so what's important here, again, is, is the heart. It's having a heart that acknowledges God as the one who holds our future in his hands. James has been giving the readers a picture of all the ways that they're showing double-mindedness and how they're not having actions that flow out of their faith, and this is no different. Planning a business venture isn't a sin. James was addressing the sin underneath that was hidden but still very serious. Because if we're not submitting our lives to Christ and we're essentially Lord of our own life, who does that mean Jesus is to us? It's funny, when I look over the list of sins that James is calling them out on, making business plans seems like the least significant of them all when you're comparing it to things like anger and speaking rash words and pursuing church roles out of selfish ambition and treating poor people badly and all the other things he points out. But when I really think about what James is rebuking here, it kind of seems like maybe the most significant of them all. Because a faith that is just words alongside a life that we view as our own not submitted to Christ? Well, that seems like the very definition of double-mindedness. It's the very definition of faith without works. And what's even more sobering is that of all the sins that we've seen James address, out of everything he talks about, I feel like this is the one that I think is the most prevalent in our culture today. How many of us like to talk about God and faith and we go to church, but when it comes down to it, view our lives as our own? I've said it before, and I will say it again, that human nature does not change. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word and for how convicting it is and how much it illuminates just the deep parts of our hearts that are just sinful and that are not glorifying to you. And thank you so much for your grace that you offer us when we repent and that we can truly have hearts that are conformed more and more into your image. Thank you for the work that your, your word 
does when we study it and how it changes us and molds us and transforms us more into your image. God, I pray that as a result of our time in the word in this part of James, that you would help us to see and identify any areas of our life that we are living this way, that we are living this doubleness, Lord, that we are pursuing the things of the world and being a friend of the world while at the same time trying to pursue you. I pray that you would turn from that and we would repent from that and that you would help us to be able to Um, not just be content where we're at, but just have the right desires and to run into them and to run um, hard at the desires that you want us to have, those desires to know you and to make you known. God, I just love you and I love your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen.